and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our public conversations, the ideas that have formed us, and how to have better conversations across difference. In this episode, you'll hear a talk I had with Tom Holland. Tom is a historian, biographer, and broadcaster. He's the author of Rubicon, Persian Fire, Millennium, and In the Shadow of the Sword, among many others. He has just published Dominion, which tells the story of the influence of Christianity on the Western world. We spoke about losing his childhood faith, falling in love with the classical world, and why he'd really like to believe in God. I hope you enjoy listening. Tom, I'm going to kick off with the big question, uh, which we start every podcast with, and I still as yet haven't managed to create a pithy uh, definition of. I'm going to ask you about your sacred values, and by that I mean deep principles that you try and live by, things that feel very uncomfortable when there's the threat of them being compromised and that you think might be uh, fundamental to who you are. Having had a bit of time to think about it, what came to mind? Um, well, I, I think that the the principles that are sacred to me, as with most people, are the principles that I was brought up with. Um, and those principles are fundamentally Christian ones. I, w- I would say that there are uh, two in particular, um, both of which uh, clearly derive from my Christian upbringing. Um, one is a, a conviction that, that all human beings are equal, uh, reflecting the, the biblical notion that all human beings are created equally in the image of God, which gives them uh, an especial dignity. And the other is that um, the rich the strong, the powerful have a duty to the poor, to the weak, to those who don't have power. However, um, I, I have to issue a caveat, which is that um, I, I find nothing that makes me believe that the duty to, or the responsibility to have these values is an objective one. Um, I can easily imagine being brought up in a different time, in a different place, and believing very different things. And although I recognise my upbringing as, as having been a deeply Christian one, it's also been shadowed pretty much from the age of six by a nagging anxiety that the world might be actually a, a far more frightening and carnivorous place. And that's due to... Um, my earliest childhood obsession was with prehistoric life. And so the earliest picture books that I was obsessed by showed sauropods being attacked, slashed to pieces, devoured by a variety of carnivorous dinosaurs. And in, in a sense, that also, I suppose, is, is, is a part of what, it, you know, if it's saying sacred, a, a, a sense that, and maybe almost a Nietzschean sense that there is also something within life that is frightening and 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 unsettling. So that's a, the kind of shadow, I suppose, of 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 my values. You were brought up by a, a, a deeply Christian mother. Is that a fair description? Yes. But your father didn't have any particular belief. I, I still have basically no idea what my. <laughs> what my father's beliefs are. He's a very private man. Uh, he, he certainly didn't go to church. 
Um, I, I, I suspect that he doesn't he doesn't believe in God. I, I'm, you know, he's certainly not a, a practicing Christian. But to my mother, yes, it was was very very important, very important part of her um, her, her character, her, her her emotional and and moral and spiritual responses to life uh, was was absolutely founded in in a, a notion of Christianity that um, came to her when she was a young woman who came to London. I think was quite lonely. And discovered deep friendships in a church in London, um, and it has shaped her life ever since. In interviews before, you've talked about this. Um, you talked about an ebbing sense, ebbing away of a sense of God or a, a certainty of the Christianity that you'd experienced as a young child. And it sounds really not at all traumatic when you've talked about it elsewhere that it just sort of drifted away. Yeah. Is that? T- tell me more about that because that feels. Like it might be real to some people's experiences, but for others, there is more grief around that loss. Well, as I say, I mean, it was from a very early age. I remember going to Sunday school and there was um, a children's Bible, illustrated Bible. And on the first page, it had Adam and Eve with a brachiosaur in the Garden of Eden. And I knew that human beings had not existed with with dinosaurs. I mean, it was the first thing that you learn when you become a dinosaur enthusiast. And so I asked the Sunday school teacher and said, what's going on here? And not only could she not answer why, but she, but she didn't even seem to recognize that this was an important issue. And it was, a, I suppose, a, you know, every child goes through that crisis point where you realize that actually adults don't know everything. And even more unsettlingly, you know things that adults don't. And that kind of then, I suppose, shook me up and gave me a very kind of late Victorian crisis of faith, which was a kind of bubbling away underneath the surface. Yes, but but it was focused on all the things that that, that caused crisis of faith after Darwin. It was all about survival of the fittest and the deep sense of geological time and all those kind of of issues. And I think also it was was a kind of psychological and emotional one as well, because um, my, my interest in dinosaurs, big, fierce, glamorous, extinct, moved seamlessly into an interest with, with, with the ancient empires of the Near East and the Mediterranean. So Rome, um, Greece, Syria, Egypt, Babylon. And, and I remember, you know, I, I was fascinated by the Bible. Uh, it, you know, I loved reading it. I, I loved the stories. I loved the way in which it was clearly part of the fabric of, of this broader history. But to be honest, I was more interested in that than I was in, in the patriarchs or, or even, you know, in, in the figure of, of of God Himself, so you know, if I was reading the um, the New Testament, I was much more interested in Pontius Pilate and the centurion and his slave than I was in Jesus, to be honest. And I always had that sense that the Greek gods were just much more interesting, much sexier, much more glamorous than than the biblical God. Which didn't mean that I didn't respond deeply and emotionally to the Christian story and and. To, to the biblical narrative, I did. It, it's just that it, it felt to me that they were kind of like competing station, competing radio stations, and, and I was, you know, I would enjoy both. But 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 I was, I, f- I found the, the the music that was coming from the Greco-Roman musical station more appealing. It, as you're speaking, it's almost as if the story you're telling is of almost the, br- the brutality and the suffering and the sex and the power of, I mean, 
obviously there was sex with the dinosaurs, but you know, the the well, certainly. I mean, the the dynamic of power of sexual power in Greece and Rome. Yes, yeah. I found I found. I, I recognise now as having very early erotic charge. Yeah. I, my grandmother had a book of Greek myths and looking back at it, the, it was full of um, classical sculpture, but also kind of faintly fetid Victorian <laughs> paintings of, of, of these scenes. And they all involved kind of gods raping mortals. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I found the power dynamic kind of exciting. And it also sounds like you found something there that felt more true to your experience of the world. Is that fair uh, enough? Well, no, because because I, I my mother's love, the love of of my godmother, who um, was also very important to me, was also a, a, you know a very devout Anglican. That seemed absolutely true to the way of the world, and I, you know, again, I recognise now, looking back, that actually the the Greek myths didn't. They didn't reconf- they, they didn't configure the way that I thought, that I felt, that I believed in the way that actually the story of the passion did. Ultimately, I recognised that the story of the passion was the deepest. It was the, it was the one that 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 penetrated most deeply into my emotional makeup, into my, my into my intellectual makeup as well. Um, but it's taken me time to recognise that. I think, uh, and certainly. When I when I when I kind of weigh up the appeal of the, the the carnivorous take on life and let's say the Pascal take on life, um, it's it's taken me time to recognise that actually the whole of the Pascal take on life is is deeper and profounder. You write beautifully about your godmother and being at her bedside when she died and the strong sense she had of a hope of that not being the end. Yeah. And you walking, I'm going to make me a bit teary, but you walking out and feeling strongly that, you know, the, the matter and energy that made up your godmother would remain in the world, but that was all that there was. And I'm really, I've been really fascinated reading your book and reading interviews with you, because perhaps more so than some of the other atheists that I've interviewed, you, you sit in this fascinating liminal space, it feels, between acknowledging the power and the goodness and the emotional and psychic pull of Christianity, but also most of the time speaking as someone who's just straightforwardly atheist and doesn't believe Well, that. I don't think I am straightforwardly atheist anymore. Nothing. Okay. Um, I, I certainly was. Um, I, I, I mean, I would say that, 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 that I was kind of closer to agnosticism. Um, I, I was never militantly atheist. It, and the reason I wasn't militantly atheist was the same reason that I, I, felt suspicious of highly religious people. It seemed to me a form of Puritanism. And I, and I think that even more fully now. Um, so it was closer to agnosticism and the agnosticism was, was, was a kind of, um, as I say, a kind of uh, inability to decide between the ways in which all these various cultural influences, emotional influences were, were pulling me. Um, but I think that the conclusion that I've come to is that you asked me what my sense of the sacred is, and I, I, I said, you know, I, the, the conviction that 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 all human life is is sacred, um, the conviction that the strong have a duty of care to the weak, but I can I can find no basis for that that doesn't depend ultimately on on the kind of mythic status of, of really of the crucifixion, I suppose. I mean, that 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 seems to me what lies at the heart of the civilization. 
that has generated these ideas as its core values and attempts to um to state them as somehow philosophical or or political or or moral principles that can be followed without the animating power of that myth seem to me to be faintly anemic so i i powerfully believe in in the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection as a myth and oddly one of the things that that i have found helpful over the past 2 years and it's a most unexpected person because i i had i had viewed his writings as a kind of adolescent fling that i'd massively grown up from was 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 the writings of tolkien who was obsessed by myth and a devoutly believing catholic and talked about how myth can be true and i suppose that's where i am at the moment i believe that the christian myth in some deep psychological emotional spiritual way is true now whether that in turn means that the lord jesus christ rose from the dead on the third day and is seated at the right hand of god the father you know i that's that's harder for me to believe but it may be that 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 having acknowledged the myth that lies at the heart of christianity as as true it may be that i will come to that and and i would i would welcome that like agent malta i want i want to believe and there are times when i do believe you know there are times when i believe there are times when you know at, at christmas or easter or um you know when you're at places where you know thin places places where 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 the divine seems to intrude upon the, the mortal or where i um i read certain things or or where i, I contemplate um certain people who seem to me to, to particularly embody um christian truths and I, I i i do feel this kind of i think oh this must be what it's like to this must be what it's like to believe it's a kind of when you take an ecstasy pill you f- the, the onset is a kind of glowing it's a kind of golden glowing in the blood and i imagine that, that that faith must be that kind of ecstasy and that's why it's called ecstasy and there are times where i feel it and then it kind of fades away again but you know i i, w- I would love to feel that I'm really grateful for you being as honest and as open and as vulnerable as you have been for a while about the complexities of belief and identity and wrestling in public. And I, whenever I'm kind of probing around people's beliefs, I, f- I feel a strong sense of responsibility and duty of care because there's such a power dynamic in our public conversations about everything, but about belief and non-belief. And I feel the raw the background roar of the tribalism that drives so much of us and the sense in which all of us and Christians are as guilty of this as we kind of want to stick our flag in people. Like I know for so many people listening who are Christians hearing you, they'll be going, they're just cheering you on. They're like, <laughs> come on, Tom. And they'll be praying for you. And, I'm very, very happy for them. Yeah. I, you know, I would love yeah, them to. Yeah. Like, and, you know, you know, I, their prayers are answered. Yeah. And you know, but that's beautiful <laughs> and good. But I know that for many humanists or atheists, they probably feel the same thing because we love to belong and we love people. Yeah, but that they're we... all they're all basically the same. What Athe- athe- atheists, humanists, and athe- self-confessing atheists are you know in this country are, are are essentially belong as much to Protestant sects as Anglicans do. I mean, they're, they're clearly part of that rolling evolutionary process that. <laughs> that generated the Reformation, that generated the Enlightenment. And, you know, humanist values are, are essentially Christian values. 
So let's dig into this because it's it's clearly one of the things that will come up in the commentary around the book that you've got increasingly clear, as, as many people have in public life, that, you know, John Gray being key proponent, that humanism in particular is, you know, he, he calls it a Protestant heresy or, you know, a, a form of Christianity. And you know, I've spoken to lots of atheists and humanists on the podcast. And when I asked them what they find difficult, and Andrew Copson in particular said this, they often say they feel like the things that they hold sacred are always being claimed by other people and pulled away from them. And, to- and, and the sense they often feel is that they're being told that the things they believe are not really theirs or they're not really valid or they're not really legitimate. And there's, there's kind of tribal and... N- narrow responses to it. And then there's, I think, a sense of genuine perplexity about how to respond. So as you're making that case, how much are you thinking about how it will land and how to help the people that you want to persuade hear that? How much have you kind of lost patience with that? I'm not trying to persuade anyone. I'm, I'm not here as an evangelist. I'm saying what I think. Well, this is my judgment on, on, on the process of, of, of how and why I think we as a society tend to believe what we believe and what its relationship is not just to the immediate past, but to the deep past. And, you know, the, the, uh, in a sense, it's personal to me because going back to what I was saying about this kind of divided self, the, you know, Athens and Jerusalem, uh, um, the Iliad and, and the book of Jeremiah, there is a tension there. And my instinct had been to imagine that essentially I was, you know, a Greek, but the more I've lived in the minds of the Greeks and the Romans, the more alien, the more terrifying, the more peculiar, the more strange I find them, the more alienating. And essentially, I, I wrote a book on the fall of the Roman Republic. I wrote a book on, on the Persian Wars. And the, the, you, when you do that, when you kind of imaginatively inhabit the, the minds of, of, of people like that, it's kind of like a marriage. But you get to know them in a way that you don't if you just study them. And I found that process unsettling. And so I began, that's what then made me interested in Christian history, because I, I, I began to think, well, the, actually, the things that I think clearly come from, you know, they're clearly Christian in inspiration. So that's, that's really been the process. So I wrote, I wrote a book um, about Latin Europe uh, in the 10th and 11th centuries. And this is, the new book, Dominion, is really a uh, an expansion on that to see whether this thesis hold water to, to, to test whether you can indeed trace a, a kind of evolutionary process by which Christianity does emerge, obviously out of the the melting pot of of, of the Roman world in the first century, you know, elements from 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 Judaism, obviously from from Greece, from Rome, from Persia, all these elements mixing together, but creating something that does seem to me quite radically new. And then tracing the course of that evolution, or rather, let's call it an earthquake, the, 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 the ripples that, as they spill out into the present day. And I have no doubt that in its essentials, in its fundamentals, our civilization in the 21st century in the West is utterly saturated with Christian assumptions. And those assumptions are not necessarily predicated on a belief in uh, you know a, a creator god it's not predicated on on the reality of jesus rising from the dead it reflects a 2000 year process of 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 cultural change and in a sense the very idea of of change the idea that uh 
just as the individual can be born again, just as the individual can be washed of its sins, just as the individual can be brought to um, a better understanding of, 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 of what is truthful, can gain enlightenment, so also can a society. And that, of course, is, 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 is fundamental to, um, to Paul's teachings, most famously in the beginning of, of John's Gospel, but it, it, it becomes societized in the 11th century in the Latin West in this extraordinary process of, of, of revolutionary ferment in the 11th century. And it establishes a template that we've never really escaped. The, 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 and and they, the reformers in the 11th century who seized control of the bishopric of Rome and turned it into an agent of revolution, an agent for transforming society top to bottom from uh, – who, who aimed to, 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 to cleanse the whole of the Christian people and to bring them to a new understanding of their purpose. This process was called reformatio. It was a, about turning, about changing, about remaking. So what we call the Reformation is merely another iteration of that. And so is the Enlightenment, so is the French Revolution, so is, the, you know, so is wokeness. Wokeness is about, you know, it's, it's about awakening. So it was that was that chapter was fascinating to me to me the kind of later chapters where it just felt like you were pointing at everything and saying look Christianity you know the Beatles yeah, I feel, I me feel, too I feel like the, the I feel like the father in the goodness gracious me sketch who says oh, Indian everything's Indian I mean that's what I feel like it's called everything's I mean I, I, not everything is Christian but the fund in its fundamentals it is and I think that the the question you ask where atheists say oh well uh, you know why can't our beliefs just be ours rather than rather than deriving from Christianity what you'll find with 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 humanists in particular and this is something again that, that that goes back to the Enlightenment. Voltaire was always doing it. Is a, a, a desire to claim that the, the 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 specifics of Enlightenment are somehow universal. So you find them in ancient Greece, for instance. You find them in China. You find them in India. In other words, this idea that Enlightenment is something that just kind of hovers uh, imminent in the uh, in the atmosphere, waiting to be brought down. But of course, that's a, that's a, that's a, in itself is a massively kind. Of it's a myth. It's a it's an absolute myth, and and you'd think why why are why would an atheist worry about where his or her beliefs come from? I mean, what does it matter whether they where they come from ultimately? Why why the anxiety to say well it comes from you know Greek philosophy or whatever rather than what it obviously does come from? And there's clearly kind of Oedipal anxiety there. Let's ground it in something really specific because we had a fascinating Twitter interaction with uh, an atheist and a philosopher um, called Stephen around the article that you wrote in The Spectator that was kind of laying out the thesis of the book. And he he was clearly deeply offended, which is why I've been trying to think to this question. I'm always interested in the kind of emotional power of these reactions we have to the other and to and to arguments. And I, I, and I was trying to ask, I hope, kind of open-handedly and open-heartedly, like, help me understand why, if you're an atheist... It wouldn't be, it's fine, wouldn't be okay to say, look at all this great human knowledge that came through the me, you know, that came through the the medium or the, you know, the delivery method of Christianity. That actually, there there feels like something offensive to some people in your argument. And he, I think that what I, what I got to was he felt like you'd overstated the case, but also he just didn't trust your motives and. 
I feel like that is a thread that goes right through so many of these tricky things in public conversation that actually the things we disagree on are much narrower than we think, but we just don't trust each other's motives. And we're always seeing power grabs. It's all a complicated way of setting up my question about the role of history and the way history is used and the way we claim ownership for it or use it to legitimize and delegitimize things. How, as a historian, do you do you see that as kind of a moral purpose? Do you see that as a vocation? How kind of lightly or heavily do you carry that responsibility? Well, I, th- I think that um, uh, my, my personal understanding of, of, of a historian's duty is, is to be true to what he or she thinks actually happened and to attempt to understand what actually happened to the best of his or her ability. Um, now, that understanding of history is not itself, of course, neutral. It, 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 it's, it's one that, that, I don't know, Eusebius or, or Gregory of Tours would not have recognised. Um, but that is, that, is what I, that, that is what I hold to, and I think that, that in, in holding to that, I am representative of most people who write history. Um, but there is also uh, a, an additional dimension to my interest in history. I'm not an academic historian. And so there may even be people who would doubt that I, that qualifies me to rank as a historian at all. But my interest is in the fact that history is is really the only branch of academic knowledge that is, is simultaneously a, a form of literature. And I'm interested in the writtenness of history. And I'm interested in the way that um, myths are themselves, they're not, just, they're not just generated by the processes of history, but they determine and affect how we understand those processes in turn. And the Christian myth, of course, is the most influential myth of all time. It's the most influential myth that humanity has ever devised. And the myth expresses itself in the West in particularly distinctive forms. So there is the, the, the primal Christian myth, which all Christians share, which emerged in the first century AD. Then there is, the, I think, the, the myth that is generated in, in the 11th century, which runs from the, the, the Middle Ages right to the present, this idea that um, governments should have a kind of moral purpose, that, that, that it is the role of society to, uh, to wash itself of its sins, to be born anew, that... Um, the functioning of, of, of history should somehow have a moral purpose that expresses itself through the doings of the powerful. Then there's the, the, the myths that are generated by the Reformation. There are the myths generated by the Enlightenment. There are the myths that, that have been generated in the, in the 20th century and now in the 21st century. But all of these myths in their fundamentals, it seems to me, are, are Christian. And I suppose the the, the philosopher who has recognised that most acutely is Nietzsche. And so in that sense, I suppose that, that, that Dominion, my book about this, and, and indeed my understanding of history, is, is an, ultimately a Nietzschean one. I always, um, I always enjoy going back to read Nietzsche just because he feels like the philosopher that's got the most punchy prose. And Well, I, I, you know, I've, I, I, over the course of, of, of um, researching and writing this book, Obviously, I read an enormous amount of, of apologetics um, from, from the New Testament itself right the way up, up, up to the present day. But I have to say that uh, of all the writers I read, no one 
made me feel more wholly Christian than Nietzsche because Nietzsche hates Christianity for the reasons that, 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 that most people admire it. And he, he is an atheist because, how can I frame this? He, he, most atheists, when they abandon, you know, if they, if they don't have a belief in Christianity, nevertheless want to keep hold of Christian morality. They, 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 they may attribute, they say, well, this is just the way it is. We hold these this things self-evident. This is what human nature is. We hold these things to be self-evident. This is what science proves. Uh, of course, you know, it, it, it doesn't at all. We, we hold these beliefs because this is the result of, of, of the history that has generated the society in which we live. Nietzsche really detested those beliefs, and that's why he became an atheist. And the great shadow that hangs over us is that um, although Nietzsche himself was was very philo-Semitic, great admirer of, of the Jews, uh, so not a nationalist that you know he, he he gave up his Prussian citizenship at an early age and and remained um, stateless for the rest of his life. Nevertheless, his rejection of Christian morality, um, in a way, his 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 blaming of of the Christian eulogization of the weak on the Jews, fused with uh, interpretations of Darwinism to create the climate in which Nazism then became possible. And I think that um, the shadow that hangs over uh, our post-Christian society is a kind of terrified awareness of what actually happens when you get rid of Christian morality. Because we know, we've seen it. You know, I talked about the two guiding principles, my two guiding values, the Nazis existed consciously to repudiate those. The idea that Aryans were superior to Jews, that Jews were a lesser form of life, that therefore they should be eliminated. And also the idea that the strong should prevail over the weak, that the disabled or whoever should be euthanized. These were fundamental to, 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 the, to what the Nazis saw as being good. The Nazis didn't set, you know, the whole point of the, the famous Michelin Webb sketch, are we the baddies, is the Nazis didn't think they were the baddies. The Nazis thought that they were the goodies. They thought that they were uprooting this slave morality that had held back their, their race. They thought that it was the right thing to do. And ultimately, I, I, I don't see how you can argue that, that you know, objectively, that that's wrong. If you don't think that there, <laughs> that there is a mythic quality that sustains the values that oppose them. So I wanted to ask if, having read seemingly everything ever written around Christianity, although that's probably impossible, uh, because the sense from your book is the, is the diffuseness of the legacy and also how it can take people in completely different directions. You know, Merkel's immigration policy versus Orban's yeah. immigration policy. You know, you, you say the cultural wars in the States are not basically Christianity versus progressives, but a, a civil war between Christian sects. Yeah. Given how the, the fruits are so diverse... Did you come to a conclusion about what kind of what is the essence of the thing? I think that um, there is a massive tension at the heart of Christian universalism. I, I think the universalism is the kind of the key idea that emerged, and this is why Christianity is so successful in the Roman world. Is that it, it, is that in the, the Roman Empire, this bringing together of of different peoples into a single framework of of, of administration, it it. There are all kinds of uh, uh, attempts to provide a kind of philosophical or spiritual or, or framework for what the Roman Empire has, has generated. 
of which Christianity is one, but it's the most it, it's the most successful and it triumphs because it provides the peoples who live within the Roman Empire with a sense that actually uh, w- the world that they now inhabit as Gauls and Arabs and um, Italians and Spaniards that this 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 is reflecting God's purpose that 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 God has indeed created all humans in His image and so it gives them a kind of dignity that that um, corresponds to the state within which they they exist, but there is a tension there that is 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 inherent, implicit, right from the beginning. When Paul famously says, you know, that there is no Jew or Greek in Christ Jesus, and and this is this seems to us a kind of noble idea that that you know there's no black or white, you know, we're we're all the same. But what if you know you're a Jew? And you don't want to have your identity dissolved into a kind of slushy universalist mush. And that's, Paul is already waking up to the problem of that, you know, in his, in, in his letters. And it's, it's an issue that's, that's there in Christianity right from its very, very beginnings. What do you do with people who do not want to be part of, of, of what you feel is, 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 is right, of what is universal? And that's the that's the the tension that that lies to this day in in liberalism. What do you do with people who don't want to be liberal? Um, I'm going to slightly out myself, or not fully, but so, uh, what I'm going to say sounds extremely evangelical. And some days that's exactly what I am. Um, just depends what day you catch me. But as I was reading, I was the phrase I used to that kept coming to mind was um, "fruits, not the roots," and not not you, but in general, I am suspicious of people who call themselves cultural Christians because it feels to me like uh, Christianity and its power and its mythological, you know, resonance can be and has been repeatedly used as a kind of excluding force or a nationalistic force or a political force. And that those, and we see, you know, one in the White House, those who want to use the power of Christianity without submitting to what I, and of course it's subjective, feel is the heart of it, which, which is this kind of the, the weakness and the defeat of the cross and the kind of self-giving, self-sacrificial laying down of power grab uh, are almost worse than those well, who say. Um, cultural Christians are not the first to have rejected those who are not Christian. Yes. You know, this is, again, is, is, is something that goes back a very, very long way. Yeah. You talked earlier about um, how both Merkel and Orban in their approach to the migration crisis are both deeply Christian. Of course, uh, the idea that, that um, you should help the suffering and the weak and the poor is, is, is the fundamental Christian value. Um, the, the parable of the good Samaritan. I mean, that's that, that's the essence of it. You know, the Samaritan helps the Jew. That's the point. But equally, you know, it goes back to this idea of what do you do with people who 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 don't want to buy into those values, and what you do with 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 people who want to overthrow Christian civilization was an issue that Christian Europe faced in the early Middle Ages when confronted with. Vikings or Magyars or Saracens or whatever, and and so that has been a, a, a tension in the, in the idea that you should just turn the other cheek and love your enemy. And in Hungary, it has a particular resonance, both because the Hungarians, the Magyars, were themselves predators on Christian Europe and were then 
converted to Christianity um, and became great bulwarks of, 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 of Christian faith, but then, of course, were conquered by the Ottomans and subjected to Muslim rule for a very, very long period. Um, That's and it a would very be, helpful bit of the story to remember. And, and it, it would be, it would be uh, I, think, I think it diminishes the moral demands that Christianity and, and indeed Christian civilization generally places on people if if that dilemma is 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 um, kind of underplayed, because you know had 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 the Vikings succeeded in eradicating Christianity from England, then the notion that you should love your enemy would have vanished from England as well. And then what? Thank you. It's a live it's a live kind of tension for me in the sense that, that you know one of the hats I wear, one of the things I do is I lead Theos, and Theos exists fundamentally to make the case that you make so brilliantly in the book that these ideas and this legacy and these communities are important and in the main a force for good. And we shouldn't overlook them um, as sources of wisdom just because we've got so used to it and they're no but, longer but fashionable. But I would say more than that. You say it's a force for good. I would say that the definition of good is a Christian one. You know, I, yeah. because people say force for good unthinkingly. I'm yeah. not saying you are, but, but, but you know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but our understanding of what is good is not, is not, you know, it doesn't just come from anywhere. Yeah. It's, absolutely culturally conditioned i suppose if you're you know if you're a christian you say well it's it's you know it's the manifestation of the spirit yeah but you know you don't have to be hegel to say that that the, the, <laughs> to secularize that notion of the spirit we 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 are in that sense the spirit of christianity continues to animate us i mean i i i the the, the best metaphor for it came to me uh, watching chernobyl you know the recent um drama series where there's an amazing sequence where you see the radioactivity smashing up out of the, um, the, 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 the reactor and ionizing the air. So you can see the process. But of course, simultaneously, that radioactivity is invisible as it starts to, to spread um, towards Kiev and, 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 and then across Scandinavia and across Europe. And this radioactivity that is leaking in, from from the from Chernobyl is is invisible, but is no less powerful for being invisible. Now, I'm not saying that Christianity is radioactivity, but it is certainly transformative in that way, and it changes you even if you're not aware that it's changing you, and even if you can't see the air being ionized by it, you're still breathing it in. I'm going to ask my last question, and we've—it's uh, been so fascinating that we've run out of time to do a whole section that I wanted to ask about uh, the public conversation about Islam and your experience of writing about that and experiencing, um, you know, a significant backlash and death threats and various things, um, which I'd love to talk to you about another time. But you've spoken about elsewhere, and I will try and point people to it um, in the podcast notes. But so from that experience, from being a historian over these many years, from as you're preparing to launch another book and launch into all the conversations that you'll have about it. What have you learned in public conversations about what works for helping us to understand each other and enrich each other better rather than our public conversations just for sites of having the same old arguments that go round and round again based on our tribal lines? Okay, well, what I, th what I think is that, um, that a society cannot function unless it has a controlling myth. And I think the, the, the controlling myth in our society is that of secularism that somehow the secular is neutral and that um, those who uphold the secular state are somehow um, neutral umpires between those of different faiths and those of none. I, that is clearly a myth. 
Secularism is is a, a, a specific and utterly contingent product of the civilization of uh, Latin Christendom as it has evolved over the past thousand years, and the obligation not just on Muslims but on Jews has been to reconfigure themselves as they have to think of themselves if they're to function as citizens in Western states, not as belonging to a people, so not as belonging to uh, Israel, the people of Israel, or to the Ummah, but to something called a religion. And that that concept of religion, certainly in Britain, is a, is a very Protestant one still. It's one that Catholics also have to subject themselves to, I think. Um, and the process certainly, you know, as Jews found over the past two centuries, has been a Procrustean one. It's required them to kind of stretch bits here, to lop off bits there, to reconfigure their understanding, to accept that they belong to something called Judaism, which is a Christian word dating back to the second century AD. It's not one that, that, that Jewish intellectuals ever ever thought. But, but Jews in Britain basically now are obliged to, to consider that they belong to some a religion called Judaism. And the same process is now happening with Muslims. And Essentially, that is the framework within which difference can thrive. But if you're in, you know, if you're in the greenhouse, you're not aware that you're in a greenhouse. It looks like it's all multiple plants growing freely. But we are in the greenhouse, and in that sense, those who are are, are not Chris, not of Christian heritage are, I think, I, I mean, I think that they are at a disadvantage. I think they are obliged to accommodate themselves to this kind of framework of Christian assumptions that, that, that has evolved for so long. Um, and I think that, that that creates pressures and strains on them. And I think that, that you, know, you see some of the strains are, are evident in the, the anti-Semitism crisis in, in labor at the moment. But also you see the, you know, the strains in, in, in the way that, that there, are, there are Muslims in, in Britain who, who clearly do, whether inchoately or, or whether they understand what the, what the problem is, they do feel that, 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 that they are disadvantaged. And I think that they are disadvantaged. And, and, and that then becomes the appeal of, of you know, the, the, the appeal of belonging to an Ummah, of, of rejecting the idea of a nation state, rejecting the, 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 the controlling assumptions of secularism. And I'm kind of torn between whether it's, it's better for people to recognize this or whether we should just carry on, you know, it's, it's the noble lie. But I do think it's a noble lie. I think, I think secularism is a noble lie. And to be kind of painfully practical, what could or should that mean for how we navigate across difference, say across the difference of belief or non-belief or with a Muslim or a Jew? Are there things we can do, ways we can talk, assumptions we can challenge that just surface some of those tensions? I, 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 well, I'm not a Jew or a Muslim, so I, I wouldn't feel that it's my role to, to say Um I, I, I mean, I don't think that the, I do not think it's going to change. I do not think that that you can suddenly um, introduce, you know, the jizya or anything. I mean, it's just not going to happen. What's the jizya? The the the, the tax that the Quran mandates should be levied on on Jews or, or or Christians in exchange for their freedom to practice religion. You know, this is this and which was kind of taken for granted by every Islamic state that existed up until the nineteenth century when um, they were basically forced at, at British gunpoint to, to abolish it. You know, that's not going to go back. The, the Christian assumptions that governed why the West got the Islamic world to abolish the jizya, you know, that's not, not going to go back on that. 
Um, so I think that that I think probably we're better off <laughs> not dwelling too much on the historical processes and pretending that secularism is culturally culturally neutral. Um, but I, you know, I. <laughs> I, th- I think we shouldn't be surprised at the, at the resulting strains. Tom Holland, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.